0: And follow BSL on Twitter. 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 Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. And for the first time, we are able to recap an Orioles full season affiliate in 2022 as the Delmarva Swordbirds wrapped up their campaign over the weekend. And Swordbirds play-by-play broadcaster Sam Zelnik is going to be joining us in just a moment to help us recap their season, which certainly saw an interesting series of events before we do that, we want to welcome a new member to our Patreon community. I'll turn that over to Bob.
1: Yeah, we got uh, another AA member, Scott Sullivan. I believe this last name. I uh, earlier really knew that from a merchandise purchase. so thank you for that as well, Scott. but yeah, welcome aboard and a year up front. We always love when people do that. We'll make it we'll make sure it's worth your while.
0: Yeah, absolutely. thank you for your support, Scott and now. Without further ado, I would to introduce tonight's guest. He is the Director of Broadcasting and Communications for the Delmarva Swordbirds. You heard him on the call this season for the Swordbirds. He is Sam Zelenik. Sam, how are you?
2: Zach, I'm doing great. How are you guys?
0: Doing good and glad to have you back. We had you on the show back in June and certainly things changed a lot uh, over the last few months. It sort of feels like that you kind of had like multiple seasons going on where you went from a really young roster full of players that were signed by the Orioles or acquired as international prospects to a lot of 2022 draftees coming out of the college ranks uh, at the end of the season. So what was it like for you to see that first stand?
2: It was absolutely nuts. (laughs) I mean, the way it unfolded, I think, was probably the most shocking, isn't the right word, but the most unexpected part of it. Um, One thing I talked to both a lot of people within the Orioles organization and without um, about this season was with the later draft date um, and how that truncated up against the trade deadline. Nobody was really sure how uh, everything was going to play out as far as when guys sign, when they're able to report down to Florida, and then if they're ready to come and join a full season affiliate. So last year, the guys ended up when we got the draft class had about six weeks and we started kind of counting down the days. Once the signing deadline came and went uh, at the start of August and we're like, okay, if they, you know, if they're going to send guys here, it's going to be like two, three weeks of play in that state. And we were were sitting there wondering, okay, are they going to think that it's worth it? And ultimately the decision was, yeah, we think that this is the best opportunity for everybody involved. So that turned into sending guys to us in waves. Um, Orioles made sure that first all the pitchers were ramped up um, correctly. Um, That was the biggest thing that they were concerned about was with the later draft date, you're dealing with pitchers, depending on how long their season went, who probably haven't thrown live game action in at minimum a month and a half. So you're ramping guys up and then you're finally getting them to us. And then we get wave one uh, August the 16th. Uh, that was your Judd Fabian, Max Wagner, Dylan Beavers, Silas Arduan. Uh, and then the next week, we got the bulk of the pitching staff, um, Wyatt Cheney, uh, Trey Sprite, guys like that. And then a few days later, Carter Young, Doug Hodo, and then, quite frankly, the most shocking one to me, Jackson Holliday, which was just the cherry on top. Um, so getting to see those guys after seeing the wave of Latin American guys come in was really cool. Um, and overall, yeah... Last year, we kind of had a three-season type of team. With this, we ended up surpassing even that as far as a uh, new franchise record for players used with 83, <laughs> which is a lot. Um, and the good news is uh, more than half of those guys ended up being promoted, um, which is, at the end of the day, what we all hope to see.
1: Yeah, that's that's good stuff right there. We saw the Orioles make a few aggressive promotions out of Delmarva this summer, like um, Trenton Craig, Luis Valdez, and maybe most notably Isaac DeLeon. Mm-hmm. Did that move
2: surprise you? Did that um, move surprise you? The Valdez one did not. Um, we were most saddened by the fact that he ended up uh, two stolen bases shy of setting our franchise record, um, which we were we were certain we had the graphic made, we had everything ready for it, and of course, you know, is what it is. But uh, Luis, that was—I don't want to put words in Felipe. Felipe Rojas Jr. or manager's mouth, but he might've been the favorite guy on the team as far as watching his development. Cause Luis came from a guy who was in the Dominican summer league a year ago. And unlike Frederick Ben Cosme, he was old for that level. He shouldn't have been there in the first place. So the fact that they then jumped in and he stood his ground at this level, continued to do what he did and then earned his promotion was great to see. Um, De Leon was the one that surprised me the most Just from the standpoint, if you had told me at the end of May that De Leon was going to end up at high-aid and end the season, and it wasn't just because they're throwing him up there because you know they need somebody to fill, that was awesome. His final month and a half with the Shorebirds, he looked like a completely different player. Just very aggressive. The swings that he took and just how he started to combine his knowledge and control of the strike zone with the bat speed and power that he had suddenly he started marrying the two and, you know, you get the results that you did. And then Ben Cosme, I mean, that one, you, you couldn't have asked me back in May what I thought because he wasn't even with us then. Um, his bat-to-ball skills, everybody's already said it, completely elite, and it's just about, okay, how much power can he add without losing what I think is might actually be like a 70-grade hit tool, just as far as his ability to put bat-to-ball however he wants is a skill that you can't really teach. So how much of that you're going to have to take away for him to tap into the power? That's the next question. So um, none of those at the end of the day ended up surprising me from the standpoint of they didn't deserve the promotion, but they were definitely surprising at the fact of how they came along and that the Orioles decided to be aggressive. And I think it's a good thing in a weird way that the Orioles' hand was almost forced because they have such a talent-rich system now that, okay, if you kept Ben Cosme or Dale Leon around, but you want Jackson Holliday and Max Wagner and all the new draft guys to get at-bats in the infield, well, where are you putting these guys? So it's, it was interesting to see how they answered that question, which was with aggressive promotions, which I don't think is the worst thing in the world.
1: Yeah, daily, and I feel like, was a guy we're talking about. You know, if he repeats low A next year, he could break out. And then he just performs so well that, hey, what's happened a little earlier than we thought? Yeah,
3: especially Valdez, because I unfortunately wasn't on uh, last time you were on the show. But going back and listening to the episode uh, after you were on, and you were talking about Valdez and how he was just raw. You know, you saw the stolen bases, but, you know, it was based on just pure speed. You know, maybe not so much of mastering the art of stealing bases. But and you kind of touched on this a little bit, but... I mean, did, did you really get a sense that this guy really took a huge progression uh, right before he got that jump up to Aberdeen, as in like next year, Luis Valdez could be this. He's not just going to be this guy that just just steals bases in the lower levels of the minor leagues, but could become like a legitimate prospect in
2: the system. So I guess the that comes back to how you define a legitimate prospect with Valdez's skill set and his tools, which is that he's never going to hit for power. That is just, point blank if he hits five home runs a year that'll be a small miracle um but i think that he could hit 300 with his tool set if he learns how to utilize it correctly which if you look at the way his splits are drawn up he does he hits the ball on the ground a lot he makes a lot of contact he could still aim to strike out less and walk more but At the same time, he hits the ball the other way and does everything of a prototypical leadoff guy. I don't think that he's somebody who would ever crack a top 30 necessarily. Um, He could be on the outer fringes of that. But he's a guy that when you're building a system and potentially a playoff team down the line, somebody who who has 80-grade speed, top of the scale, and can play multiple positions, they tend to find their way onto the back end of playoff rosters and are pretty valuable. There's a reason why Taron Score is going to be playing baseball until it's just him and cockroaches. Um, so with that kind of speed, I think Luis could definitely weasel his way into eventually, hopefully Orioles in a playoff push, a September call-up, as you go sit on the end of the bench, and we, when, you, when we ask you to steal a base, you go steal a base. Um, I think that that's something that could potentially happen. It's just whether or not you think he'll have to hit Enough, and right now at high A, he's still shredding water and doing okay, but it'll be interesting because he came to single A as a older prospect. It never seemed like he was truly overmatched, and we'll see when he gets to high A now for a longer stretch whether or not he can live up to the pigeon.
3: You talked about Ben Cosme there for a minute, but this was a guy who – I mean, he was kind of on our radar just from looking at DSL stats. I mean, it's really all we get access to there. And the numbers stood out, but I don't think any of us expected this 18, 19 year old kid with an OPS over 800 at Delmarva. What kind of difference did he make for the Shorebirds when he was there? And you talked about the bat to ball skills, which are elite. And outlets like Baseball in America are even starting to take notice of that. But what would you say some of his other strengths and weaknesses are?
2: So, as far as strengths, you know, I did start to see him hitting for a bit more power. By the end of his time, I think that that was something that the Orioles didn't shy away from as far as explaining to him this is what you do really, really well, and this is what you don't do well right now as a hitter. Yeah, if uh, quite frankly, if he wanted to, I've never seen somebody have the kind of ability he did to take like a middle in fastball, like a little bit on the hands and bloop it into left center for a base hit with as much consistency as one man like Frederick Ben Cosme did. But that's not what the Orioles want him to do long term. Yeah, you can maybe hit 300 doing that, but you're not hitting over three homers a season. Um, So they started getting him to pull the ball more. And, you know, in a weird way, I guess you could say that maybe he's on the Colton Cowser track as far as what, what you want his progression to look like. Somebody who has elite bat-to-ball skills, knowledge of the strike zone, but can sometimes fall into that trap of they're so good at those things that they lean all the way into it. So it's about reining him back in and saying, okay, yes, we know nine times out of ten you can take that middle-in fastball and flare it to left for a base hit, but we'd rather take the 30% chance you'll hit it for a homer. That's what we want. So his aptitude for... You know, a being willing to learn to do that, and then you know how much he can get that to play in game will be big. The biggest issue I saw from him will be his defense. Um, He looked really, really, really raw at shortstop, and given the talent the Orioles have up the middle, especially guys who they want to stick at shortstop and are very good there defensively, he's going to get pushed off a short pretty quickly. Um, Which means if he's at a corner like third he's going to have to hit for more power. And then, okay, even if you say second base, he didn't play that much second. Well, here's with the Shorebirds it was mostly third, which I think is why they want him to dip more into that power because if you're trying to compete with Isaac DeLeon at the same position, you know, that's that's hard to stack up against.
1: Yeah, the good thing is he just basically doesn't strike out. So, yeah, maybe <laughs> if he just tries to lean into that power, he can make work for him, but great season for sure. So, when we had
0: you on earlier this summer, Misail DeSohn, Carter Baumler, and Creed Willems were some of the guys that were clearly younger, high upside prospects that had room to develop as the season was going to progress. Baumler obviously was set back by the injury, but what did you see from those guys the rest of the way?
2: So, I'll touch on Baumler first because he's the guy that saddened me the most. The amount of excitement he generated in such a short amount of time, not just within Orioles' prospect community but within our own team and our coaching staff, I think goes to show that do not give up on him. Just please take my word on it. He will be back and he will be fine. Um, You know, I have no insight into his current injury status or anything, but just having gotten to see him work on a day-to-day basis, I have full faith in him that he will come back and should his arm allow him to, he will be a major league pitcher one day. Um, he just for somebody who would miss as much time as he did and then came back and pitched with the composure and just the general aptitude for baseball that you don't really see in a 19 or 20 year old really impressed me. Um, and I was super sad when, you know, A, he first got shut down and then B, we realized that he wasn't coming back. Um, so I think next year, should he be healthy, could be a big one. Um, Creed Willems, everybody's going to look at the overall numbers and point to a disappointment of a season, um, which I think is a fair criticism. But also, if you look at the final numbers in August and September, he started to turn a corner, which, when it's all said and done, isn't that what we're kind of looking for here now for guys in their first full season of professional baseball, is can you grow and learn and at least show us that over the course of 130 game schedule by the end, you were better than you were at the beginning. And I think he was, um, I think the numbers in August, he hit like two seventy, had that big walk off Homer. That was a phenomenal moment. And I think really good kind of capstone of like, please don't give up on him just yet. <laughs> I think we've seen, you know, a lot of the shine come off of his prospect status, but he still catches a game really well. He still has an absolute cannon. He can can still hit the snot out of the baseball. Um, It's just I think he's now seen enough pitching at this level to know how he's going to be attacked. And the next year, I think that's when it really will kind of come to the point of if he starts struggling then, then I think you can worry. But I think he's another one of those guys who will come back in a second year of single A, most likely, and dominate the competition for 40, 50 games, and then get promoted. Um, Orioles, and this is also a good thing, uh, Orioles have a lot of college-level catching depth within the organization, so there's no need to rush him. Um, if they need a catcher at high A, Silas Arduan is perfectly capable of starting next year at high A. Connor Pavaloni will probably be at double A, so it'll be Creed's game to call with, with the Shorebirds. With Desone, it just never seemed like he got it going. Um, over the course of the season towards the end it actually seemed like that was the moment we we were in Lynchburg at the end of July hit a three-run homer first of the season there was absolute nuke and I thought that that was like okay we're finally going to get to see the day that we know has been trapped in theirs all season long and it just came back to you know, little dings of injuries, eating him up a little. And then eventually the draft class comes and with the level of outfielders that are coming to the shorebirds, there wasn't any playing time available. And it just came back to, okay, let's shut it down back to Florida. We'll work on some things and hopefully come back stronger next year. There are still enough moments where you say, we know it's in there. I can't figure out why he can't make as hard contact as he can. Um, Maybe it's a hitch in the swing. Part of it, I know, is pitch selection. Um, but at the same time, you look at him, and it's almost baffling as to why it hasn't clicked. Um, so I think, again, like Willems for like Willems for DeSone next year, it'll be a thing of if you can't come back to this level and prove that you can hit this pitching, now we're really going to start being concerned.
0: I'm to touch yeah. on Willems for a minute with his defense because it's something that I know that the – Orioles' organization seems to be high on internally. It's his defense for his aides and his ability to call the game. What were you hearing about how he works with the pitching staff?
2: So that was a huge thing was just his comfort level with the pitching staff. that He you know, he did the time to get to know guys. What pitches do they like in certain spots? And then just getting to know them on a personal level. Caritas, <clears throat> I'm sure everybody has realized at this point, is a very affable, friendly human being. Um, who it is very hard not to get along with, um, so he has that going for him and uses it to his advantage when working with the pitching staff. On top of that, you're working with a pitching staff that is predominantly Latin American, um, and that is a huge language barrier. So the fact that you know Creed was able to surpass that, lean on a lot of the other um, bilingual guys in the team. You Noelbert know, Romero was key in that. Once Daryl Hernandez left. Um, no, Albert was mostly the translator whenever Creed would go out to the mounds, and Noelbert Albert was playing on the infield with a Latin pitcher, um, Creed's ability to connect with those guys, call a very good game. And, you know, some of the mistakes that you would have expected from a younger catcher, I don't feel like ever really came out too often. I wasn't ever really too baffled by the sequencing, you know, what pitches he was trying to lean on with certain guys. Everything seems genuinely up to par. And then he's able to block pretty well. Everybody knows about the arm, and it never seemed like he tried to let his arm um, do most of the talking. As far as he knew, he knows he has a cannon, but his mechanics, as far as trying to make sure he pops out of the squat quick, gets a good transfer, and gets the ball out quickly. You know, he doesn't mitigate those factors and just relies on the arm. He makes sure that you know mechanically he's sound.
3: Yeah. I love all. I think Creed is probably the prospect, one of the prospects in the entire system. That I think we get the most questions about the people that you mentioned. The shine coming off a little bit, people concerned, but just the fact that he's a catcher, and I didn't expect him in Marva until maybe when the draft class came up, to be honest. Uh, but the fact that he's a 19-year-old teenage catcher, uh, I love that you mentioned the. I was curious if he spoke Spanish or that language very How much that was an issue, but. Good to hear to to stay confident on uh, on Creed Willems, and hopefully everybody took that advice to heart there because that this that last month of the season I think was you you could tell the bat was definitely starting to come around and next year if you got Creed and Sammy Basayo uh, sharing duties behind the plate I think you're gonna have a fun time calling some of those home runs
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean I, I talked to Creed a lot about he had a little bit of an arm injury. It took us the last week before the All Star break into the ensuing weeks after, and he said how big that was for him as a chance to recenter on the season. That nobody admits it. Daryl Hernandez talked to me about it at the start of this year. In everybody's first full professional season, there is a point where you hit a wall, and you know you start questioning a everything. That, you know, do I still love this game? What am I doing? Am I good enough? Whatever. When really, you're just really freaking tired. Um, It's a long grind, especially as a catcher. So, Creed got to that point and he had the chance to recenter himself, refocus, and kind of get that splash of water in the face that got the juices going again. And to see that he went and ran with it. And then, once the draft class came in, he didn't act like somebody, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, Creed was one of three position players left on the roster from anything close to opening day. But when the new guys came in, he didn't, you know, turn a cold shoulder or anything. He welcomed them with open arms and realized how much he could learn from Adam Redstock and Silas and Dylan Beavers, and Judd Fabian, Max Wagner, and pick their brains. And for him, that was really cool towards the end of the year.
1: Yeah, and like Vivek in the comments, I do love that insight on, on Um And he's another guy that I feel like could really excel next year repeating the level because, yeah, his overall numbers don't look that great. But I feel like he definitely showed flashes of tools, speed, power, more power than I thought he had. What do you think about him after the full season?
2: I hate to say I, I view entire teams and the players and the guys that I get to know. Like, I, like you never want to pick a favorite child. No, Albert's my favorite child. He he is a bundle of joy and energy and literally one of the best people I have gotten to know in this game. Um, with that aside, like you said, he has his flashes of speed and power. Um, and by the end of the season, he wasn't tapping into the power as much, but I thought his approach to the plate was a little bit better. Um, he wanted his 10th homer at more than you could have possibly imagined. <laughs> Um, so the fact that he, he thought he was only going to hit like six or seven this year. So he was more than happy that he almost doubled it. Um, but I think like you said, he'll be somebody that comes back to this level and you know, how much can you capitalize on the flashes that we saw from him and draw that out a little bit more? He's another guy who is still very well defensively, but also bounced around a lot by the end of the season. He was playing first base. That was, he said that was the first time since, I think he said during some time down in the DSL with the Red Sox, he played a little bit of first just because. Um, he also appeared in right field for us uh, during a crazy uh, – we had some injuries and we only had a three-man bench, so no was out in the right. Um, ball wasn't hit to him. He was very sad. Um, but he is somebody that I think, again, like you said, he'll come back for another year and it's okay. Can you show us that what you did last year in spurts, you can do over a longer period of time? Um, And I think he can. I've seen the work that he puts in and the, you know, the kind of charisma that he has. It's not obnoxious. It's not him being too overconfident. He is just somebody that genuinely loves to play the game of baseball and thanks God every day for it.
1: Yeah, that's great. Um, Another guy, who look like you know, he's coming back from injury and just lighting the world on fire. Heston Kerstad, he tore up low A pitching when he was with you guys, but he's gone through a little bit of a longer adjustment period at Aberdeen, which, I mean, I think we know by now low A to high A is probably the biggest jump in minor leagues right now, potentially, plus that ballpark in Aberdeen's is a, a monster hit to hit him. But what was working for him when he was with the Shorebirds that could be applied to maybe him turning things around in the upper minors?
2: So that was actually the thing that concerned me a little when he did get promoted, was that I have no question about Heston Kerstadt's talent. What I saw is an insanely good player who has special bat-to-ball skills, great amount of power, but it was the in coming back after a two-year layoff, he was very good about letting pitches travel deep and being able to, you know, essentially bulk up and go the other way and still drive for the baseball because he is such a big, strong guy with elite bat speed. And I think that that's just caught up to him a little bit at high A. Um, also, you know, like you said, single-A pitching, he was still getting what I like to call one mistake in at-bat. You're almost guaranteed at the single-A level to get one mistake pitch per at-bat. And because of the caliber of pitching at this level, Heston wasn't missing. But he, he is not missing a 90-mile-an-hour... Fastball right down the middle. He's He just isn't. It's either a line draft single or he's you know poking something into the gap. So those have been a few, bit more few and far between. And then I think something that people still need to cut him some slack for is he still missed two years. He's played more games this year than he has since. You got to remember also 2020 was a truncated year for him even when he did play. So the last time he's played 50 games in a season was 2019. That is a really, really, really long layoff. And I've had guys come to me this year, their first full professional season, who say that they're tired. I can't imagine what it's like for him, despite all the strength and conditioning and everything, just mentally. And I think we saw that, the, you know, the game that he got pulled on the road at Hudson Valley, smashing the bat. He cares. He, he wants to get it right. Um, and I think finally experiencing that failure for the first time, you know, that's one thing that always interests me for high draft picks or any draft pick is a lot of them have never failed and have never failed on a relatively big stage. So he's finally going through that for the first time. And hopefully he's coming out on the other side of it now here towards the end of the season with Aberdeen and then into the playoffs, homered the final game of the year. You know, the tools, I think that was the biggest concern for everybody Orioles front office scouts fans, was what was Heston kurstad after two years? What were we going to see? Was it going to be the same player or not? And I think what you can take away, no matter what from this season, is that it was. And if that is not a resounding success, I don't know what is.
3: Love it. I also thought, too, just the the men- how mentally drained he has to be at this point because he thought he's going to start this year and then he had the hamstring injury like right before you know the season was supposed to start as well. So good to hear on Heston. But... Let's talk about the pitching. And one of the, I think, bigger bright spots of this Delmarva roster this year, one of the breakout guys was Davy Cruz. We we're excited about him. He's, he, Baseball America had him as a top 30 guy right before the draft happened. Um, what were your thoughts on him and what adjustments do you think he'll need to make as he moves up through the system?
2: He was, it's really wild to watch him pitch. Um, and Baseball America had a great write-up on it and dug deeper into some analytic stuff that i don't have access to, but they do. And in turning his fastball and invisible, the the way the metrics line up as far as spin rate, um, induced vertical break, and his arm slot, um, all of that combines for a 90 to 93 mile an hour fastball that for some reason nobody can square up. And after a while, there's now been enough of a sample size where you say, it's just a fact. It's not a fluke. Um, For him, it'll be control. Because, oddly enough, I wouldn't say his actual control is bad. It's just every now and again, he just loses all commands. Um, And it's very strange as to why. He had two starts this year where he walked six batters, um, which is obviously concerning. But in one of those, he walked six and only gave up an unearned run, which is, you know, that's not normal. (laughs) Um, So it'll come back to, okay, can he throw his... you know, his full arsenal of pitches for strikes. Because like I said, the baffling thing about it is it's not that he doesn't show that he can throw those pitches for strikes. He can. So it's, okay, why does he, like, once every two starts, it just completely evaporates. It's getting that consistency. Um, I love his changeup. He has what pitching coach Joe Hamacher told me. He said that this is something that can come back to Latin American roots. He has a pitch which sits about 84 to 87 and looks no better than a BP fastball. But, again, because of Cruz's metrics and the way he throws his fastball, guys can't hit it. And I asked Joe what what in the world that pitch is. He said, oh, yeah, sometimes Davey just needs to strike so he'll flip it over. It's not quite a changeup, not quite a fastball, somewhere in between. Nobody can hit it either way. (laughs) Um, So he's kind of got that swagger on the mound too about it. Um, and he is still rail thin. <laughs> um and you know, for those that aren't aware, his brother Hoseway Cruz, who was with the Shorebirds but since released, Hostway was six five two fifty. Um so if Davy even has like an ounce of that in him, he'll you know, he'll grow a little bit more. Um and he's still learning just again, how to pitch this much this often and take care of his body. He had an insanely Funny, scary, weird moment um, a couple of starts ago where we thought he injured his foot, but it turned out he was breaking in new cleats. He hadn't cut his toenails, and his toenails started to crack. So they brought him his cleats from the locker room after he had allowed for the the first four batters to reach, including walking, three of them. He changed his cleats and then didn't allow a run the rest of the way over five innings. It's just really stupid stuff like that or you shake your head, but you're smiling at the same time because you realize how special he is. Um, and, you know, whether or not he ever taps into the velo is, you know, a fair question for right now. You have faith that with his age and with time and with, you know, adding more weight, he'll be fine. But I also have enough faith in the Orioles and how they've oddly had a knack for developing left-handed pitchers with, Quote unquote subpar fastballs as far as velocity goes. John Means, Drew Rahm, even, you know, Alex Wells, Zach Lowther, they're serviceable MLB depth pieces if you really need a 10th, 11th guy down your list of starting pitchers, and that never hurts. So the fact that the Orioles have experience with this, you know, I'll leave it to them.
0: Question about like the what you saw with his command. Do you think there were times where maybe Cruz just I don't want to say melted down, but he'd have innings where he just really struggled and the walks would pile up, um, or was it not quite that simple?
2: I'm not sure if I would call it a meltdown, because you are right in that a lot of times the walks did just pile up. All of a sudden, it's, oh my God, he's walked three guys in a row, the bases are loaded, how's he going to get out of this jam, and miraculously, nine times out of ten, he did. Um, So I'm not even quite sure it's that, as it is the mid mid-inning ability and mid-game ability to adapt and make changes. Um, A lot of guys just haven't pitched enough and experienced those moments where they can tell, okay, my release point's maybe a little bit off. Maybe my stride isn't as far. Maybe just one of my pitches isn't working. How do I adapt to this? Um, And the only way that you know how to adapt to it is to go through it. Um, Because before he had walked six in a game, Juan Nunez actually went through the same thing, where Juan hadn't walked more than three batters in the game. His first start with the Shorebirds, he walked seven. Um, so for a lot of these guys, it's they kind of get into those situations where they get a little bit deer in headlights just as far as they don't know what to do. Um, because if you've never been through something before, you're just taking guesses in the dark at how do I adapt to this. And that's where pitching coaches come in, and they'll try to help and figure things out. But sometimes, because they are so young and mentally it's very hard to do things like that, some days that start just isn't it. The biggest thing for Davey, though, was each start after the ones where he walked six, he came back and pitched well. Um, and that's what pitching coach Joe Hallmacher said was the biggest thing, was Davey didn't shy away from, oh, my God, I pitched terribly, I, you know, I'm bad, I walked six guys. He would come in and say, I walked six. How do I not do this again? And, you know, as long as you have that growth mindset, you know, I think he'll be fine.
0: It's great to hear. And his stuff certainly looks good this year. Another guy who we were pretty high on in the pitching side was Juan De Los Santos. He seemed to be settling in really well, especially right around the time you we were last on the show, mm-hmm. but then had struggles later in the year and ended up on the development list with a few weeks before the end of the season. We were fairly high on him for much of this year, and do you think that there's still a reason for optimism heading into next season?
2: Oh, 100%. Um, the development listing, that's purely he ran out of innings. Um, the Orioles did not expect him to pitch and pitch as well and as deep into games as he did as early in the season as he did. Um, so by the time I think I actually talked to you guys, I think he had already doubled his inning total from last year. Um, and the standard level of progression that I've seen is that's about as much as they want to let guys throw, Um, and that was back in late June into July. And from there, if you actually look at his game logs, he never went past four innings again. Um, That was the plan. He was shut down for a week or two at a time just to conserve his innings, and eventually that still couldn't even do the trick to get him through an entire campaign. So, you know, with Juan – I think the bigger, biggest thing will be by the time his innings did double, he did start struggling a lot. It wasn't the stuff was bad anymore, but I think it was you could tell that he was getting fatigued just from, you know, he ended with around 75, 80-ish innings, and that was second most in the team behind Connor Grady, who's a college pitcher. And... Delos, by the time the middle of the year rolled around, you could tell that once it got even an inning or two into starts, sometimes the fastball would level out. It still had the same v but command wasn't as sharp. You know, he just wasn't able to put pitches where he wanted to exactly. And then all of a sudden, it just starts taking a toll on you. You start seeing the results. You get upset, yada, yada, yada. So for Delos, the raw stuff is still there. It's just going to come back to getting his innings in order for next year at the start of the season, he was going five innings every time out, um, and it's just unfortunate. You have that choice in that moment of, he's throwing so well in April and May that you want him to relish in that success and get that fifth inning, because that's an important moment. The only way you learn how to pitch deep into a game is you pitch deep into a game. Um, so and that was a little bit of the trade-off, was that eventually yeah, they're going to want DeLos to do things like that. It just came at the cost of later in the year, okay, he's running out of innings, he's running up stamina, you know, let's just hit pause, we can reset for next year. And I think that he could make a very big jump next year because still just watching his bullpens, his side sessions, everything's there. He's still physically gifted. Fastball still runs up 95, 96. And also, his ability to throw his fastball how he wants from anywhere from 91 to 99 is one of the dumbest things I've ever witnessed in person. There were like four or five different starts where I was actually concerned for his health because he was throwing 91 in the first inning, and then he comes around in the third and he's pumping 98. And I'm like, yep, that's just what he does. <laughs>
1: yeah, very excited to see how he progresses into next year, hopefully with Aberdeen to start the year. But uh, you didn't get to spend much time with Dylan Beavers this season since he only played, like, 16 games with you guys. But, you know, he got a lot of great feedback. Uh, If you read John Mioli's newsletter, like, a lot of great feedback there. And what kind of impact did he make on the team? Seems like someone who's going to be slept on until he's, you know, putting up great numbers once he (laughs) hits A.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, Like you said, when John came and spoke to Dylan, we were on the road in Fredericksburg, and nobody had really pointed out to me until I started talking with John a little bit more. And it was the, and also talking to our hitting coach, Brink Ambler was the, during the final two, three weeks of the season, despite how well Beavers played, I can tell you like, it's not, this isn't just guessing. He was really uncomfortable. Like he was not settled in. He was, you know, questioning swing decisions, mechanics. He, you know, he felt, you know, not great at the plate. And he, Goes out, hits 375 for the PS over 1,000. If that's his uncomfortable state, as Brink told me, good God, what is it going to look like when he actually feels all right, let alone actually locked in? Um, so he's got everything physically that you could want. He's going to add power. Um, he's going to add bulk. At first, I thought his swing looked like Christian Jelich's, but as the season went on, it looked a little bit more like Brandon Belt's, um, which are both good major league hitters, um, you know, he swings the right pitches. His swing is so insanely short when you actually see it in person, which almost belies the kind of body he has because he's very gangly, especially once you see him start running. It's very gazelle-like, um, but he can also cover ground with the best of them. Um, so he's got a lot once he actually dials it in and figures out what it is that he wants to do with the plate and what he's most comfortable with. That's those are the scariest guys, the ones who you can't tell that they're uncomfortable at the plate um, and until you know, all of a sudden they're locked in and they're locked in is you know, hitting above 500. So his development will be very interesting to watch.
3: What about one of his fellow draft mates there, who you saw even less of in Judd Fabian? And again, it's talking about Mioli. He had, I absolutely love that piece he wrote about Fabian and some of Brink Ambush comments on Fabian's work ethic. Uh, what did you notice from Fabian when he was in Delmarva putting up a OPS over 1,300 in his 10 games he was there?
2: So part of the reason Fabian actually got moved up as quickly as he did, even as opposed to Beaver or Wagner, was that for some reason nobody in – the Carolina league would pitch judd correctly it's even going back to college fabian has a scouting report it's that he can absolutely demolish a fastball and everybody just kept throwing him fastballs and leaving pitches up in the zone and he demolished it and it was like okay you know there's not really much left to be learned here if nobody's going to challenge you um so that's why he was promoted as quickly as he was but i think it goes back to something I said earlier, which is with Perstad, when you get them, when you get those mistakes, yeah, you expect almost everybody to hit them. But the thing is, the good or great hitters, they don't miss them. And Fabian never missed a mistake pitch. He hit every single one, not just hard, but he hit them for homers. And that's exactly what the Orioles signed him to do. Um, and I think more than he lets on, I think he has. Trying to think of the right word here because I don't want to put words in Judd's mouth. He, I think, if you asked him, he, and he actually told the truth about it. I think he would say, "Yeah, he is still a little bitter at the Red Sox about what happened." Um, and that coming back to the Orioles and having a chance to show the Red Sox what they missed out on is a driving factor. Maybe not one at the top of the list or whatever, but it's there. Um, and with that kind of power. A grudge can power you a long way.
3: <laughs> Based on our mentions, Red Sox fans I know are still very for <laughs> Judd Fabian, so it goes both ways. And as Orioles fans, I love it.
2: That, that series he had at Salem when they all came to the Shorebirds for the first time were playing a Red Sox affiliate, and he legitimately got booed. I have never, like, not just like one fan or two fans, you know, a drunk guy, you know, trying to absolutely you know rail into a player it was the whole ballpark and i was like "Man, this is kind of cool <laughs> and then he hit homers and everybody gets even more pissed and <laughs> it was that was one of the coolest moments
0: it's strange to think that a game in salem virginia he's going to be booed for not signing with the red sox so i guess the fans are uh, very loyal to their major league affiliate there
2: <laughs> oddly oddly they are and you know Judd was very honest in everything that happened, and I'll give him credit for that. Because a lot of guys probably would have tried to cover, not cover up isn't the right word, but, you know, brush it aside that he had something that happened, it's in the past, it's whatever, we're focusing on the now. Given the way it all played out and that the Orioles ended up being the one to draft him this year and sign him, it matters. It's, it's a big thing, and I think for him, seeing that the Orioles were that intent on drafting him, not just this year, but last year, that was a real thing, and he knows it was a real thing, you know. But that was something that I think he'll take with him for a long time.
0: So Jackson Holiday, you know, the big prize of the 2022 draft, the first overall pick, ended his brief stint to Swerber's by reaching base 14 times in his last five games. As an 18-year-old drafted out of high school, he's not the advanced college bat like Adley Rutzmer or Colton or or some of the other hitters that came through Del Marva last summer and then this summer. But is it fair to say that his level of play was on par with some of these older bats?
2: So I'm really glad that that's the way you phrased that question because every time somebody asks me about Holiday, they ask, you know, was he, can he, does he live up to the hype? Is he as good as you thought he was going to be, whatever? And the best answer I have for what I saw in Jackson Holiday was that he was comfortable, which is a kind of alarmingly scary for an 18-year-old at this level of play, that it just looked like he belonged. He didn't look out of place next to Fabian or Beavers or Wagner. He just looked like Jackson Holliday. There wasn't ever an at-bat where I'm like, man, you know, this is the first time he's seeing this kind of pitching. It was just consistent ABs, a kid who will not chase out of the strike zone, which at this level is a little bit of a detriment because the umpiring can be so bad that he got rung up on so many calls that were, you know, you throw your hands up. Because he won't chase. He he, he just won't. Um, but every day, I would just kind of had to remind myself a little bit that what he's doing isn't normal. You're not supposed to come to this level and just be okay. Even when his average, even when he's sitting below 200, I didn't really care and it didn't really matter because he was still making hard contact and he wasn't ever overmatched for an instant, which is, you know given just given the time frame of how this all happened, you rise from first round pick late, you know, late teens to, yeah, you're going to be number one overall pick. You sign, you go to Florida, you rake season ends. GM has already said weeks prior. Yeah. You're probably not going to full season ball. Oh yeah. You're going to full season ball. And then you go, you do it, you play well. And that's that. Like I, I think it has glossed over some people's eyes and gone over some people's heads. That's not the way it's supposed to happen.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if they will, but I feel like they could justify starting him at Aberdeen next year without any, really any doubt. So what do you think that they'll probably do with him?
2: So it's crossed my mind and I try not to think about it too much. Um, But I think best comparison, and this is, I'll throw a few caveats in just so I don't get everybody all riled up. Um, I think a good comparison is Kobe Mayo. Not Obviously, we're not talking player to player, but just situation. Kobe played twice as many games. Numbers overall were better. He was also a year older. But Kobe did come back from all intents and purposes from what I was told. The plan was to start him back with Del Marva this season. He obviously did not do that, and he's currently a double A. Kobe came into spring training, turned a lot of heads, impressed a lot of people, and they wanted to challenge him. And I think the Orioles are really leaning into, we want to challenge you. So if Jackson comes back after this winter and goes into spring training, and the Orioles say, man, like, this is an even better player than the one that we thought we drafted last year. I don't think they'd hesitate to put him at Aberdeen. Um, I think the likelier scenario is he plays 30 games with the Shorebirds, ends up raking, you know, 300, 3-4-5 slash line, and then gets promoted. I think that's the likelier um, course of action here, as far as if the Orioles want to be a little bit more conservative but at the same time the time for conservatism is over isn't it you know as far as and this is another thing that we'll start playing into it not to say that any of these guys are trade chips or whatever but it's a lot easier to trade a guy who's played at higher levels than it is for guys who are lower and i think we're going to start seeing that a bit more which might have been why some of the college guys got pushed to high aid this year while last year Kowser, norby teeter all those guys they deserve the promotion to high aid end the season you know just as much as these guys did. But last year, there was no urgency. The, the rebuild was still going. The rebuild's coming to an end. And all of a sudden, those trade chips you can convince a team a lot more to trade for a player who was just drafted if they've seen them at high A or double A, as opposed to single A. Um, and that won't be the rationale with Jackson. But even when you're thinking, how quickly can we get into the majors? You know, those are the questions you start to ask now instead of... We want Adley to check every box because, you know, we don't need him right now at the majors.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And you talk about the player development team wants to see these guys challenged. That wasn't much of an issue in Delmarva, but that makes it a unique job for the coaching staff. So with all the international players and young guys getting used to professional ball in their first full season, how did the uh, pitching coach hitting coach and everybody else uh, manage this year? Do you think?
2: So everybody loved it. Um, I will give the Orioles full credit in that they did not make it a secret as to what this roster was going to look like. Um, there is a reason Felipe was our manager um, and Felipe leading this group was absolutely humongous because um, he comes from so many different backgrounds that he could relate to everybody. He is, you know, for Jackson Holiday and Silas Arduin, Felipe is also the son of a major leaguer with an insane legacy that he had to try to live up to. Dealing with, dealing with isn't the right word, but, you know, having a brother, Moises, who played in the big leagues as well. Felipe also played in the minors. You know, he's been through the grinds. He knows what he was like. Um, so he can connect to each and every one of those guys, and then also... You know, throw in the fact that he is Dominican baseball royalty. Every single Latin American player, sight on respected him because they know the name of Lou. Everybody does in that country and just in Latin America in general. So he was the perfect guy to lead the group. For our heading coach, Brink Ambler, Brink put in so much work. Brink became bilingual before the season started in order to make sure that he could present ideas and conversations to these guys without having to rely on a translator. And I will give Brink an insane amount of credit for doing that because that wasn't necessary, but he went the extra mile to do it and made sure that each and every one of these guys he cared and looked out for. Pitching coach Joe Hallmacher, he did not become bilingual, but at the end of the day, he learned enough Spanish to make it passable and then connect with these guys on a level that I've rarely seen with a pitching coach before Um, and make sure that each one of them is given the tools to do what they want to do, how they want to do it. It was never forcing analytics or TrackMan or Edger down anybody's throat. It was what do you want or what do you need to be able to succeed? Because I can't hold your hand the entire way. Eventually, you're going to have to do this on your own. And Joe did a really good job with that um, and seeing how he developed with guys and laid out plainly, this is what you do well, this is what you don't do well, this is how you get better. Whether or not you want to, that's up to you. And I think we saw enough jumps with our pitching staff, enough guys who made it up to high A that you know it worked. Um, and working with Joe, for me, he's – uh broadcasters we always spend the most time probably around pitching coaches for some reason i don't know why um but i would pick his brain so much about you know the way they operated and the way they did things and figuring out just the steps um of how you get guys better and seeing that unfold in real time is very cool um and then also you know other members of the staff liz pardo strength conditioning did a great job just she ended up becoming a second mother to most of these guys, they ended up getting her a Mother's Day card, the entire team. Um, so it, it was that real familial aspect. Danny Fajardo, fundamentals coach. Again, having somebody like Danny, who played with the Shorebirds as recently as 2019, is bilingual as well, connects the guys on a very personal level, huge. And then Alfredo Gonzalez, who was our bullpen catcher, same position as Danny. He was in the Oriole system not too long ago and provided another bilingual voice to the clubhouse. Um, So the Orioles tried to do as much as they possibly could to make this transition as easy as possible, Um, which a lot of teams don't either think about doing or don't care enough to do. So they went out of their way. And, you know, if whenever I see somebody say, and I don't think it it doesn't apply, doesn't matter whether or not it ever did about, you know, the Orioles, Orioles being sheep or not caring or whatever. It's not true. It, it, I've seen enough that it just isn't.
3: I love love that insight. I've said many times on this show that I, I wish there were more insights and articles and whatever insight into the the coaching staffs at each of these levels because I think there are some unbelievable stories uh, and especially th- that Del Marver staff being able to connect these guys to to new game. I imagine the cultural change. I think you touched on that with Daryl Hernays being kind of the leader. And these guys learning how to play. They never played in cold weather before. Um, John Mueller's article teaching them how to go to Walmart. Where get a haircut, little things <laughs> so like that.
2: that. That's a great example. I do all of my um, grocery shopping on the Monday off day, like everybody else does in minor league baseball. And lo and behold, I'm walking through the meat aisle. And who do I run into? But Liz Pardo and Noelbert Romero. <laughs> and I'm like, what the hell are you two doing here? And Liz was teaching Noelbert how to grocery shop. Because just like every other teenager, most guys haven't ever grocery shopped for themselves, let alone done it in another country where they can't read half the stuff that's on the shelves. So the fact that Liz went out of her way to do that, that's the stuff that matters. Um, and just also the aspect of so much credit needs to be given to the non Latin American players that there was never clicks. There was never, you know, Spanish speakers sit together and do their own thing, and we do our own thing. We don't really intermingle. They sought each other out. They tried to make connections, build bridges. I mean, by the end of the year, or by the end of his time with Shorebirds, Trend and Craig, there, I don't know, hopefully nobody speaks Spanish, but there is a, a Spanish word uh, called coño, which is a curse word. Um that most Latin guys mutter under their breath whenever they foul a pitch back. By the end of his time at the Shorebirds, Brendan Craig was doing that. (laughs) Or Diablo, words like that. Bombas, you know, it's just the small little things where it rubs off on people and you don't feel like an outsider within your own team anymore. You feel like you're just together. Um, And seeing that happen between guys... You know, one thing I was curious about was the bullpen always becomes a very tight-knit group, but when you when you have the language barrier, does that, you know, stop this? It didn't, not at all. If anything, it seemed like they got closer because they have to try more, and you end up with situations where, you know, Yaki Rivera is, you know, starting to learn English, and some of the guys are teaching him some of the bad words because Yaki is still 18, 19 years old and real thin, but they're trying to get him more passionate on the mounds. And that's how they're doing it. And by the end of the season, Yaki has gotten this great mindset and he's thrown absolute darts. Um, and, you know, I don't think that that would come without the urging of others around him to be himself.
3: All right. Can you just do like an off-season podcast series yourself with all these <laughs> stories? I, I would listen to that. Um,
2: my, my favorite one, and of course favorite because it uh, involves me, There is always a moment within the season where the Latin guys, because I always, at the start of the year, have an introduction for myself, you know, when we're doing media day. But it never really hits them who I am until a certain point when they finally figure out what it is that I do, who's this weird guy hanging around the team all the time, until they watch any one of the videos that we put out on social media and they recognize that it's my voice. And they come up to me the next day and – this started with Isaac De Leon and Michelle Desone. They come up to me and they just look at me in the typically at the start of the video I'll say something about the Del Shorebirds. They come up to me and they're like, the Delmarva Shorebirds. <laughs> anytime they see me, they do their best imitation of me with a little <laughs> english that they know saying the Delmarva shorebirds. And but to me, that knows the it, it's it's endearment. It shows mm-hmm. them that I care about them, they care about me and that we're trying here. Um I don't know, that was one of my favorite things. Yeah, that's so cool.
3: Yeah, love all of it. Uh on a completely different note though, uh speaking of there were a couple of 2021 shorebirds who have, are now making impact at the in the major leagues right now. Gunnar Henderson, yeah. Felix Batista being among some of the bigger standouts. Felix Batista, uh, you know, was under the radar. Gosh, who, who should garner rookie of the year votes here? What's it been like for you to see their progression through the system it is now becoming standouts at the major league level in such a short span of time?
2: When I realized that Felix was the first member of the 2019 Shorebirds to make the show, I was unbelievably happy because um, that's the team that won 90 games. Adley Rutschman was on it, but it was Felix who was first. And the level of work and the amount of care – that everybody in the organization has for him because he is as nice and awesome a dude as he comes off as during, you know, the little press that he does to see that when he came to us in 2019 on that shorebirds team, we had no clue who he was, what he was doing there. Just the track record of he spent five years in the Dominican summer league. And now all of a sudden the Orioles signed him and, You know, the Orioles don't really tamper or dip. And that was, he was a Duquette signing. Orioles didn't really ever back then dip into the minor league free agent pool, period. Um, So we were all like, who's this filler? And all of a sudden he's pumping 100, 101. And then the next year he's flying up the ranks. And I had no doubt when people were talking about the end of last year, do you put Felix Bautista on the 40 man? I'm like, you don't put him on the 40, man. You put him on the active roster. <laughs> like, this isn't a question. Um, so to see his success was unbelievably cool. Um, like you said, Gunnar Henderson from last year, that is still absolutely unreal. The, a year ago, he was tearing up single day pitching, and then strugg- struggling isn't the right word again. Everybody knows the story by now with, with Aberdeen. But for him to go through that and then come back this year, and light the league on fire and force the Orioles' hand is just you know there's a reason he's the poster child for the Orioles' minor league development right now. Like that is he is it. <laughs> that is how it's supposed to happen. Um, one guy I would want to, I want to touch on real quick. And it's not a 2021 Shorebirds, 2022 Shorebird, as our <laughs> pitching coach Joe Hallmacher says. We make big leaguers with the Shorebirds. Um, Denji Reyes had a profound impact on the Shorebirds pitching staff for literally the week and a half that he was here. Um, he, Another guy who went out of his way, a Dominican guy, to show the young Latin guys, this is how you do it. Because Denji is, is as professional as it comes, not just in you know off-the-field stuff, but with his work ethic and what he does on-field. Um, and that was still... Exceptionally wild again to have to put a 2022 Shorebird uh, is in the majors. That was very weird, um, but and also that 2021 team, Nick Vespi. Um, the fact he finally got his chance is exceptional. Everybody knows by now he's a stand-up guy, class act dude who just worked his tail off to become what he is now. Um, and I hadn't realized it until I looked back on it. But his time with the Shorebirds in twenty nineteen, yes, he threw well. He'd also been with the Shorebirds in twenty eighteen and threw well that year. Um, and I think he's again another very good example of why you never give up on a guy, and B, why you try not to assign a certain timetable. You just have to let the player development process play out. It might take longer. Yes, everybody loves young guys up in the bigs. Gunnar Henderson, Julio Rodriguez, those guys aren't normal. (laughs) That's not how it's supposed to happen. Guys like Vespi and Bautista, those are the relative normal. And I think sometimes we forget about that as far as how development cycles go, that we want it now. But for most guys, it won't happen. For a lot of guys, getting in the bigs at 24, 25 is more realistic and probably healthier for their career.
1: Yeah, the Gunnar Henderson stat that just stands out to me is like, even though he was crushing low A pitching at the beginning of last year, he was striking out way more than he has at any point this year in double A, triple A, and the major leagues. So just incredible improvement in such a short amount of time. But my last question is, what did you think of the handful of pitchers that were in this year's draft that came through uh, Delmarva, and did any of them stand out in a positive way?
2: Uh, Trace Bright did. Um, he's got just kind of your very classic delivery, very clean, very smooth. He had um, probably the most success out of any guy, um, but he was just, you know, very straight downhill, good stuff, good fastball below 94, 95 with a good breaking ball. The guy that interested me the most was Cam Weston. Um, and I had a long conversation with the scout about him because it's a little known fact that Cam is, is I haven't come across another pitcher who throws one recently. Cam throws a football, which is he said that came about when he was like 10, he couldn't throw a changeup, So coach Tom a football and it's stuck ever since. Um, but it's got nasty movement on it. Um, and with a good fastball, it's got an insane amount of late life and run on it. Um, I think he could have some success if not move up the ladder, um, a little bit quicker. Um, Reese Sharp, at the end of the bullpen, has really good stuff. Um, And they just started teaching him a curveball, which was nasty when he threw it back on Saturday. Um, The Shorebirds pitching staff that day of the back end of Sharp and Weston went five combined no-hit innings, and Weston threw three perfect. Um, So they ended the seasons on high notes, which was awesome. I was really excited to see Wyatt Chaney. That was obviously very sad. Um, I'm not sure what the prognosis on him is yet. You know, we haven't received confirmation of anything yet. Um, so hopefully no surgery, but that remains to be seen. Um, Jared Beck, obviously interesting. Um, seven feet tall. I'll see that every day. Um, he's exceptionally lanky. Fastballs like 90 miles an hour right now. Sliders a little bit sweepy. Um, But when you put his physical characteristics together, the fact that he is able to throw strikes, it's not even a great rate. But at the clip that he does, despite every other moving part that he has going on with his body, is A, a very good sign. And B, shows that he does have command over what his body's doing, which is the biggest question. Um, So I'll be interested to see where he goes um, moving forward, if he can get into that velocity. Because that's the thing that he's focused on a lot. Is he doesn't want his height to be a mitigating factor for being able to throw hard. He feels like, despite so many other six foot ten higher guys, mostly sitting at ninety ninety one, he thinks he has more. So, hopefully that happens. In um, one non draft class guy that I'll touch on, but who did join as a part of the draft class was Juan Nunez. He is really good. Don't let um, even though he. Had, pitched when he ran under two with us. He walked, like I said, he walked seven his first outing. So he ended up with a strikeout to walk of like 11 to six. But he has some of the best raw stuff I've seen. Um, really good fastball. A slider that has a legitimate um, 3,000 spin rate. And once you actually see that in person and it, not even see it, it's you hear it. That's the first thing. You hear the slider. <laughs> um, it's nasty. So I think he is somebody who will probably start with Delmarva again, but with him and Davy Crews at the top of the rotation, those are two guys who could be very, very fun to watch.
0: That is actually a good jumping-off point into our final segment where Nick, Bob, and I profile players that stood out to us outside of our top 30 list, whether it was for a good game, good stat line, just something not- noticeable in their performance. But this week, Sam, we want to start it with you. Um, just down in Marva, is there anybody that didn't get a lot of attention outside the shorebirds and maybe even hasn't been mentioned to this point tonight that you think is worth noting?
2: Hmm. Boy, that is hard. Let's see. Okay. I got a good one. Yaki Rivera. Um, obviously got uh, buzz is, you know, doing a lot of work here, but a lot of buzz as part of the trade of the Marlins, at the beginning of the year that he was the eventual player to be named later he is the guy that probably had our staff, and myself included, the most excited. Um, still just 19, like Davy Cruz, exceptionally thin, but with a fastball that can get up to 95 and a really good curveball. It is nasty. When he's on, I've seen his performance against the Carolina Mudcats when he went five perfect innings was the best in-person performance I've seen from a pitcher, just from a domination standpoint, it was it was a lot of fun to watch. And I think now that he's starting to figure out how to be a back end of the bullpen guy, he's kind of got that mentality of going onto the mound and not caring that, you know, he's the one who holds the ball in his hand and he will dictate the action. The biggest development for him was... The Shorebirds got swept by the Nationals in Fredericksburg. Brutal series back in July. It was, we had three different occasions that they gave up seven or more runs in the seventh. And Yaki was at the center of one of them. And you could just tell 5,000 person crowd breathing down his neck. He was overwhelmed. And he looked absolutely terrified. Second to last week of the season, one of our final road games, we're on the road at Fredericksburg. It's a one-run game and Yaki comes in for the eighth inning in front of another sellout crowd that is going absolutely bananas. He sets down the side in order in the eighth, comes back out from the ninth, gets the first guy, next two guys reach, and Shorebirds had already blown a lead earlier that week, so the crowd's going nuts. And he then gets the final two outs, strike out and pop up and for him to make that kind of difference between the last time he pitched there and then be faced with essentially the same situation, higher stakes and not give in was one of the coolest moments of development. That's not related to anything mechanics that I've seen because a lot of guys, you put them back in that situation and the same thing happens. But he made sure it didn't. Um, so, for that, you know, if that if he has minimum that kind of mental fortitude, I have faith also that his natural stuff will be good enough to put him wherever he wants to be.
1: That is absolutely fantastic. And, uh, you know, that five inning outing made me think could they try him as a star?
2: So, I never asked this before the season ends, or before the season ended, unfortunately. But I was curious because he had started with the Marlins. And with Orioles and his brief outings in FCL, he had started as well. But for just the amount of innings I think they wanted him to have, they put him in the bullpen here. Does he have have more, I guess, of a bullpen frame? I guess technically, just being smaller relatively. But he has the stuff fastball curveball change on where he could start at this level. And for the most part, teams like developing starters first because, well, if he can't start, we'll throw you in the pen then as opposed to having to work backwards. So I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back next year and ends up um, starting for the Shorebirds at the beginning of the season. But I think it was slightly a good thing in a weird way that he ended up um, working out of the bullpen because he got those situations um, and it forced him to really dig deep and figure out, okay, you know, his stuff will get guys out in the second or third inning of a Tuesday night game, playing in front of 900. And his stuff will get guys out in the ninth inning in front of 5,000. It's just whether or not you know he has the confidence that he can do it. So I think that that was – it might not have been the intent at the beginning, but the fact that that was the end result, happy little accident –
3: not bad. I'm a huge Yaki Rivera fan. And I love the, I did definitely notice the intensity just, you know, unable to make it out to Delmar for any games live, but you catch him on the camera as the inning ends and he's pumping his fist and he's hyped up going back to the dugout. That was definitely fun to watch. Um, I, I can do my two guys real quick. I'm going to go. Uh, my hitter this week was outfielder Dante Williams. It was good to see him settle in. He went three for 10 this week, hit a home run, had a couple walks. I think injuries have kind of derailed his season a bit, but he's playing well right as Aberdeen is now getting ready for a championship run, Uh 10, 10 OPS over the last couple of weeks. So I'm curious to see which direction he takes his game next season, but closing out the year strong is good to see. And my picture is Antonio Velez. Uh, he's still in Aberdeen. He was on a rehab assignment still, but he threw four shutout innings, no walks, five strikeouts. I was really excited to watch Velez this season came out of the gates. It, almost perfect with Bowie, those first start or two, uh, but injuries just completely destroyed his season this year. But I think last week was the best I've seen him in months, and hopefully he's fully healthy now,
1: can get some Indians out in Arizona maybe, and uh, make an impact in 2023. Yeah, both of my guys are in Sam's neck of the woods in Del Marva. I want to shout out Isaac Bellany, who had to be relieved to be facing a low A pitching as opposed to high A pitching at that point. He ended up going uh 12 for 20 so 600 batting average with a double and a walk in uh, five games that he played back in delmarva this week so just proving that you know it was just an adjustment period not necessarily that he had gotten lucky in the first four months of the season or whatever he's still the same guy young 20 year old with potential so love to see that and then reese sharp we talked about him a little bit but just shout out he had a really nice outing with four strikeouts in two innings, his last time out, and he had 16 strikeouts over eight and two thirds innings on the season with a 3.12 ERA. So, good stuff from him. But before Zach goes
3: on, we had someone ask us this is it Bellini or Bologna?
2: How do it I is, in correct? fact, Baloney? Bologna cheese. Okay.
1: Good to know. All right. I will make that adjustment. <laughs> so, I'm kind it's of more fun the to world. say anyway. <laughs>
0: A little bit of the Delmarva theme for my picks. I'll go with Elise Valdez, who's now at Aberdeen. In a three-game span between Thursday and Saturday of last week, he had his first home run at the high A level and his third overall in the season. Also swiped three bases to bring his stolen base total on the season to 71. He has 71 steals in 86 attempts between Delmarva and Aberdeen this year. And I'll go up with another player that Sam mentioned earlier, earlier and that's Cam Weston. Who, with his perfect outing against down East over the weekend, brought his total to 11 strikeouts in as many innings pits against his three walks in his time at the birds In that span, he faced pits in five games, 43 plate appearances against hitters. They batted this 150, it was a 459 OPS against him. So, Weston was really sharp with the birds And, Sam, uh, great job on the air this season. We really enjoyed you on the call. And, um, Thank you for joining us tonight. And I'm, how's how's it feel now to be in the off
2: <laughs> Hasn't uh, fully hit yet. I, uh, it, it's always tough at the end of the season when it when it comes around like this. This is the first time we've had it with a uh, season canceled, um, or with the final game canceled, so you don't get that real sense of closure. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's always strange. Um, you always start looking forward to next year, um, and you know, it's always. Sad, but in a weird way, with the staggered end to the season, getting to see A, hi in the playoffs. That is basically your a lot of 2021 or 2022 Shorebirds plus 21 guys. And then Bowie and Norfolk as well, um, getting to see them do this with so many former Shorebirds in the roster, kind of lessens the blow a little bit. But, you know, for right now, I'm happy that I got two – full good nights of sleep Um, next next week I'll probably be you know amped up at seven or eight o'clock and I can't figure out why (laughs) Um, but no it's always a tough end of the season and you know even with the losses piling up with this group it was genuinely a fun time to be around them um, and get to tell their stories because you know they kept such a good attitude throughout it. And that's what Felipe, t- I talked to Felipe on the final day of the season, that that's what he said he was most proud about, that there was never a day where everybody came out to the ballpark and you could tell that this was a team that was bad. It was always good attitudes, positive, happy to be there, trying to get better and just a genuine zest for life <laughs> was, is the best way to put it. There was never a normal day of shorebirds baseball, but now it's probably for the best. It, you know, kept things interesting and everybody loved every second of it.
0: Well, we appreciate the insight tonight and your work this season. So thank you, Sam.
2: Thank you, guys. I appreciate you having me on again. And, uh, you know, where else would I be other than nighttime chatting, being able to talk for an hour and a half straight <laughs> with my natural habitat?
3: We definitely appreciate it. And I know a lot of people listening are definitely going to love this episode. So, and, uh,
1: Last question, are uh, Major League fans going to like that pitch clock?
2: Yes. (laughs) Like, without a doubt. Um, Obviously, with you guys following the minors as much as you do, the fact that I have gotten home consistently before 11 p.m. every night, like, I can't tell you. I got so much more sleep this season. Um, And, I mean, it's funny that in the final month of the season, when our pitching was struggling the most – And with the offense being as good as it was, we played our longest games of the year, and they were still under three hours. (laughs) You started to feel like those were dragging, and then you got to pinch yourself. You got to be like, okay, don't don't be so privileged. We're still playing under three hours, okay? (laughs) Like remember remember last year, um, the we had a series in Carolina where the offense went off. That was the Billy Cook three homer game that week, and those games averaged like three forty five. So, yes, you will love it. The players will get over it. The players down here love it. Everybody does. So, yeah, it's a good thing.
1: Good night,
0: Tando. We'll get to see that play out in the major leagues next year. In the meantime, though, uh, a couple of things to look forward to this week. The Aberdeen Ironbirds begin the South Atlantic League Championship Series tomorrow night. Sorry, the South Atlantic League Northern Division Series. Tomorrow night in Brooklyn will be a best of three that will return to Aberdeen on Thursday night, we'll have reaction to that next week and more. In the meantime, check out Baltimore sports and life for all the latest articles. on the Orioles, you'll want to know Baltimore Ravens and more. Be sure to hop on the message board and join and discuss in there as fellow readers of the site, as well as contributors. And follow us on Twitter at BSL on the birds. Thank you to Sam for his insight tonight. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Sped and you've been listening to on the birds.